The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. The good news that God rescues sinners from the judgment that they deserve based upon the work of Christ. The gospel is clearly uh, something that God does for us. It's not something that we earn. It's not by our works. It's only by His grace. It's not by our effort. It's based upon the work of Christ and His effort. The good news that only by God's grace, God gives us eternal life based upon the work of His Son. Anytime the gospel is presented with faithfulness, anytime the gospel is presented with any degree of clarity, and people understand it, there's a question that always comes up. And that question is something like this. If salvation is all of God, only by His grace, based solely entirely upon the work of Jesus Christ, it has nothing to do with my works. Does that therefore mean that once I become a Christian, I can live however I want to live? If salvation is not by works, does it matter if I do the right thing or not once I become a Christian? Yes, it gets formulated in different ways, but that's the question that, that always inevitably comes up. If you really understand that it's all of grace, then, then you wonder, does that mean that I can just live however I want to live? It's a good question. It's a good question because logic calls for that question. Some people ask that question just because it's a good question. Others ask this question because they're looking for license to sin and live however they want. Others ask this question in a questioning way because they're looking to discredit Christianity. Opponents of Christianity want to say, well, if it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and it makes no impact on someone's life, what good is that religion? Well, I'm thankful that Romans chapter 6 is a, is a chapter dedicated to asking and answering this question. So if you haven't already turned there, I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And every verse in Romans 6 is dedicated to this issue. The Apostle Paul asks two questions and answers them. But really, the two questions are asking and answering the same issue. Can we just keep sinning then? The first question is asked in the first verse of chapter 6, and then he addresses it and deals with the implications down through verse 14. The second question, which is essentially the same as the first question, starts in verse 15. Look at verse 15 there where it says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And then he answers with a strong negative. So really you can divide Romans chapter 6 into two questions. But the two questions are really the same question in essence, but there are these two really important questions that need to be asked to anyone who's heard the gospel or by anyone who's heard the gospel and understood it, and they need to be answered. And so we're looking at these two questions. We looked at the first one in the first uh, half of the chapter a couple of weeks ago, and this morning we're going to look at the second one. But you get the idea that this is something really important, something really important for us to deal with. So we're going to look at the second question today, but in a sense it's just repeating the first question because it's dealing with the same issue. 
And I'm going to do my best, yes, to preach a sermon today, uh, but I'm going to do my best to do more than just do public speaking. I'm going to do my best to be pastoral. I hope I try to always do that. But the reason I'm mentioning mentioning that and drawing attention to that is because this is where we live. This is not theoretical. It's more than theoretical. If you say you're a Christian, you make decisions every day about whether or not you're going to live in sin or not. This is, if you will, where the rubber meets the road. And so this is really important for us who say we're Christians. Because this has to do with the way we live our lives. And so we're going to look at this seriously. And hopefully we'll look at it with a joy-filled heart because it is good news what we learn in Romans chapter 6 about not living in sin anymore. And so I hope you seek to understand the passage better today. I hope I seek to try to help you understand it better. But I sure am praying that we do more than just try to understand. This has to do with how we live our lives. So, let's look at this question in verse 15 again. Now reading it for the third time. Scripture reading earlier, uh, I read it in just a moment ago, but let's, let's zone in on this question with some focus. Verse 15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? What, what then? In light of Romans 1 to 5 that has gone out of its way to say, we do not have a right relationship with God based upon trying to keep His commandments. Because the fact of the matter is, in Romans chapter 3, we learn none of us keep His commandments. And even when we do so externally, we do the right thing. It's not for the right attitude. And so, if you're trying to have a good relationship with God based upon your performance... It leads to tragedy and disaster because you can't be good enough. And so we're not trying to relate to God by law. Because if we are, we're smoked. That's been Romans 1 to 5. Instead, we can have a right relationship with God based upon grace, a free gift, that God would love us while we were yet sinners, as Romans says. And He would have His Son come and He would have His Son obey the law because we don't obey the law. And he would have his son then die a sinner's death on a cross even though he never sinned. Bearing the burden, the penalty that we deserve. And then he has his son victoriously raised from the dead, putting everyone on notice and letting everyone know with a great declaration that God the Father was satisfied with the work of the Son. It's all grace. This is all grace. It's all magnificent. And so then it begs the question, if it's all grace, magnificently so, Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? What a great question. For starters, it's a great question because you only ask that question if the gospel has been presented accurately. See, the only way he would ever ask this question is if it's been made clear that it's nothing you do to gain eternal life. Nothing you do. And if you don't have that straight in your mind, you would never ask this question. It's good that he's got that straight. This is a great question as well because people still ask these kinds of questions. Maybe formulated a little bit differently. 
But people are still asking this question. People have been asking this question now for millennia. Maybe they word it differently. Maybe they say, well, is it possible to have Jesus as Savior, but not Lord? It's just a form of the same kind of question. It's a great question because it's answered. And the answer isn't, well, we just can't know. Look how he answers it. He locks, he loads and says, may it never be. May it never be. That is to say, that is unthinkable. As I said last time, he uses this Greek, uh, two words in Greek, me genoita, the strongest word for objection. This is what he says after he asks the first question, me genoita, no, 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 not in a bazillion lifetimes is this okay. Perish the thought. And I don't want to, to, to regurgitate everything that I said last time about this meganoita idea, but when you take the time to look and see how it's used in the New Testament, almost without exception, I remind you, it's used in relationship to blasphemous thinking about God. And as I mentioned two weeks ago when we were together, that may be an indicator of what's happening here. If we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, but if at the same time we're also given the power and freedom to then do the right thing as Christians by the power of God, to then suggest that it doesn't really matter if you live in sin, is outrageous and really an attack upon God. It's blasphemous because God in His saving power not only forgives, not only justifies, He also gives the supernatural ability and freedom to do the right thing. And so for me to be a teacher and come along and say, you know what, it doesn't matter if you live in sin because you know what, you're not under law, you're under grace, is ultimately an undermining of God's power because He's the one who frees us to do the right thing. So I think that's why he reserves this, this powerful word or words. Meganoita. No, 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 no. Perish the thought. And I think we should reserve that kind of powerful objector kind of statement as well. When we're thinking in our minds, you know what? I'm saved by grace anyway. I guess I could just kind of live however I want to live. You need to preach meganoita to yourself. Or someone is trying to reason with you, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, you know, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but you know what? Uh, I live however I want to live because you know what? It's grace. Well, you need to reserve that statement for those kinds of scenarios. You need to echo the Bible. You didn't say it. God said it in His Word. Meganoita. No, 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 no. You're not thinking rightly. Now, interestingly enough, what happens in Romans 6 is you have this strong, passionate, forceful, may it never be, but it doesn't end there. I love this about the Bible. We get blasted, if you will, and then it's almost like an arm is put around us, and the Apostle Paul says, Okay, I set you straight. Let me explain to you why. 
let me now give the logic. Now let me give you the rationale behind why I would say, Meganoita! Let's reason this through. And interestingly enough, for the rest of the chapter, he just argues. Argues as in gives a defense. Gives the underlying logic behind why this is an unthinkable, unacceptable conclusion. To say, shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace. And that's what we're going to look at now. Make no mistake about it. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But make no mistake about this. That doesn't mean you live however you want. And they're not mutually exclusive. And that's what he's going to argue for the rest of the passage. I tried my best to come, out with, come up with a way to outline this, but really what he's doing is he's just arguing. And I just found outlines to get in the way. So think of it in these terms. He's going to surround us with argumentation to the point where uh, you know the, the wagons are around us and, and any objection we might have to the reasonableness of this is dealt with. And so that's what we'll do is we'll look at this and come up for air now and then, but he's going to show us why this is uh, an untenable conclusion, why this is not acceptable. He's going to use slavery as an image and... Uh, He's going to even tell us throughout the passage at one point in time why it's not a perfect analogy, but nevertheless, it makes the point. And so, let's begin looking at this rationale. Look with me again, if you would, at verse 16, where we read, Do you not know? It starts with knowing the right thing. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. What I would encourage you to do is, at least what I found to be helpful is, I centered in and even underlined that statement, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. That just sort of jumped off the page at me to summarize what he's getting at. You are slaves of the one you obey. It's pretty straightforward. I can say one thing, but really what it comes down to is I show by my actions what's actually true. And if I obey righteousness, if you will, then I'm a servant of righteousness. If I obey sin, then I'm a servant of sin. Our actions kind of show or prove what's actually true regardless of what we say. Who you obey shows who you are enslaved to. As far as the technical note is concerned, if you look at that, he does say in verse 16, when you present, even that present is in the present tense. You may want to mark a note about that. So this is talking about the habits of your life. This is not talking about uh, one-time kind of sin, as, as gross as that could be. If your life is marked by doing something and serving someone, then it shows that you are a slave to that something or someone. That's what he's getting at. The second thing that, that I observed is... is I looked at this verse, verse 16, are the two different outcomes. You know, if sin is your master, it's pretty clear if you look at that verse, it leads to death. Based upon the context, he's going to contrast that with eternal life. So I think he's talking about eternal death. In verses 22 to 23, we'll see that. But then the other side of it is, if you look, you have obedience. If obedience is your master, the outcome is righteousness. 
A synonym for righteousness here is probably like sanctification, spiritual growth, maturity. It's pretty straightforward. The conclusion is, if you, or in summary, if you serve sin, you prove you're a slave to sin. You're in bondage to sin. If you serve righteousness, you prove you're a slave to righteousness. That's all he's getting at. But all of this, remember, is given to us so that we would draw conclusions. The conclusion being, this point, therefore it's unthinkable for me as a Christian to say it doesn't matter how I live. Because how I live shows who I belong to. And if I'm living as a servant to sin, which I prove to you by my actions, if I'm living in sin, I just prove to you that I'm a slave to sin. And that doesn't make any sense. I'm a Christian. I belong to Christ. It's just bad thinking. Maybe you should notice too, and we won't take much time on this, but you might want to notice as you look at verse 16, which is filled with so much, it's not a command. I thought that was interesting because sometimes I read something like that and I think, okay, this is an ideal. So I just, what he's saying is, okay, here's the ideal, verse 16. I just need to keep trying harder. He's not doing that here. He's not telling you what to do. He's just saying, here are the facts. Here are the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. What was that from? Dragnet? Sergeant Friday? I'm dating myself, right? I'm just trying to relate to the older generation is what I'm doing. <laughs> just the facts. He's not calling you yet. The Bible's not calling you yet to do anything. It's just saying, here's what's true. You serve sin, you are a slave to sin. You serve righteousness, you are a slave to righteousness. Period. End of argument. That's just how it is. And then the emphasis shifts a bit in verse 17 to those who have become Christians. Verse 17 says, but thanks be to God. I love that because he's going to give the credit to God for this, not the credit to us. Thanks be to God. Verse 17 then says, that though you were slaves of sin, as all unbelievers are, though you were slaves to sin, verse 17 then says, you, you Christians, became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching, or doctrine as the King James says, to which you were committed. Hey, those were the facts, but I've got to tell you, if you're a Christian, thanks be to God that you're no longer a slave to sin. Sure, everyone who, who is not a Christian is enslaved to sin, but thanks be to God that that's not true of you if you're a Christian. And so I'm echoing that to you. If you're a Christian, you're not a slave to sin anymore. Thanks be to God. How did you get free from slavery to sin? God did it, otherwise He wouldn't be thanking God for it. But He says it in a pretty peculiar way. You know, I would almost think he would have said, I would think that verse 17 would say something like this, but thanks be to God because you trusted in Jesus and became saved and thereby are free from sin's bondage. I mean, that, that's kind of what I was looking for. And that would be a good thing to say. I mean, coming off of Romans 1 to 5, I would expect him to say, thanks be to God that you've come to that place in your life where you've trusted in Christ. You've believed in Him and now you have the Holy Spirit and now you don't have to sin anymore. I would expect Him to have said it like that. 
And other Bible scholars would say, you know what, this, is, this kind of comes out of left field. But a lot of times when that happens, when he doesn't use his typical ordinary way of saying something, it's for us to say, why do you say it like that? Why did he describe conversion, Christian conversion, in terms like this? I mean, did you notice what he says in verse 17? Toward the end? You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching or doctrine to which you were committed? That, that's not ordinary for Paul to describe conversion in those terms, saying became obedient, and then to which you were committed. That's not ordinary. Why does he do that? I think he does that because he's made himself clear that it's only by grace, only through faith, only in Christ. But now we're busy entertaining this question. Does this mean we can live however we want to live and we don't have to obey God? He's saying, wait a minute. Even your conversion, even your believing the gospel had to do with you obeying God. This is not a new idea. Don't conclude for a second that grace and obedience are somehow in different, are in different time zones. Let me remind you what no doubt he was depending upon, the Apostle Paul. Go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 5. You know, the gospel is something to be obeyed. Yes, we say it's to be believed, but even obeying, uh, believing the gospel is, is obeying the gospel. Back in Romans 1, 5, he says through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His namesake. Obedience and grace on enemies. As a matter of fact, did you know? Do you remember? Can I remind you that the gospel is something that's to be obeyed? In fact, we won't take the time to go there, but in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, it talks about obeying the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, obeying the gospel. Remember, it's a command to believe. Remember, even the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 tells the people who are there that God is declaring to everyone everywhere that they must repent. Command mode from God. say, why are you bringing all this up? Well, I think Paul is wording their conversion in these terms to remind them, hey, even your conversion had to do with obedience because God declares to people that they must believe. It's a command from God. Now, we all know, maybe we don't all know, but if you read the Bible close enough and, and broad enough, you see, you know, actually even the ability to believe or repent is a gift from God. We know that, but he's not saying that here. But nevertheless, it is a command. We tell people you must believe in Christ to be saved. This is what God commands of all people. Again, Acts 17. I think he's using this verbiage and this terminology here to remind them that just because you're not under law doesn't mean that there's no obedience involved. There's obedience even at your conversion. You were commanded to believe the gospel and by the grace of God you did believe the gospel. And so it's nothing new for you now to obey God. It's just consistent with what happened at your conversion. He's reminding them of their conversion. Now, sadly, we're kind of in a place in the church so many times where we never talk about obeying the gospel. We always put the sinner as sovereign. 
We give them the facts as if they're utterly and entirely rational and clear thinking and godly. And we say, here's the truth about Jesus. What will you do with Him? You decide. And we forget some of the passages I just referenced. We're actually calling people to believe. Even like in Acts 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a command. Instead, we, what we need to remember is when we read our Bibles a little bit closer, what ends up happening is our evangelism, yes, we're nice, yes, we're kind, yes, the people do need to believe, but we end up being on a mission from God as ambassadors. And we say, here's the truth about Jesus Christ. You need to believe in Him. You need to stop offending God by disagreeing with God about His Son, and you need to agree with God about His Son and believe in Him and Him alone. But we don't do that very often, and it's no wonder that maybe Romans 6 doesn't make sense because of that. And it's no wonder maybe that the professing church is so unsanctified. We don't understand Romans 6. It doesn't make sense to us. How could this be? It should make a lot of sense. He's reminding them of their conversion. Verse 17. Remember when you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching or doctrine to which you were committed? What happens? Let me remind you of your conversion. If you're a Christian, you obeyed God's call to believe the truth about His Son. By His grace, and only by His grace, but nevertheless you obeyed that command. And then what happened? And then you were entrusted, you were given to teaching, to doctrine, truths about the gospel, truths about Jesus Christ that have an effect, that have an impact on your life, that have a sanctifying effect. That's what happens when somebody gets converted. And so I'm reminding you of that and saying, remember when it all started, when that happened? Obeying God is not something new. Even goes back to the very beginning. In one sense, the Apostle Paul could stop and be done. He's given his argumentation. But now he's going to take a slightly different angle. Lest we're not convinced. Verse 18 then emphasizes the work of God in our sanctification. If you look there with me, you'll see that it says, And having been freed from sin... I have to stop just for a second just to point out the fact that it's passive, right? Having been freed, this is something that has been done for you. This is something that's been done to you. So, so what he's not saying is we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, Romans 1 to 5. And now that we're on to Romans 6, sanctification, it's all by your human efforting. No. He says, having been freed from sin... This is something that, that happens when you're united with Christ. This goes back to Romans 6, 1 to 13. Having been freed from sin, so it is all of grace, even the sanctification business. It doesn't make any sense to live in sin because having been freed from sin. But then he goes on to say, this makes no sense to, to live in sin. Having been freed from sin, verse 18 goes on to say, you became slaves of righteousness. This is very logical. 
as a converted person, you know what happened to you? you? You were freed from sin by God and His grace through the power of the cross. But not only that, he also goes on to say, you became slaves of righteousness. So why in the world, if that's what happened in your relationship to Christ based upon His cross work, why in the world would you be thinking that you can then go ahead and live in sin as if you'd never been freed from sin and as if you were never a slave of righteousness? It just doesn't make any sense. It's pretty interesting, don't you think, in verse 18 at the end, you became slaves of righteousness, talking to Christians. You might think, well, I thought we were free. (laughs) Yeah, free to be a slave of righteousness. Jesus said in John chapter 8, I'm paraphrasing, if you believe in me, he says you will be free indeed. But what does free indeed mean? Now I have total independence to do whatever I want to do, total and complete autonomy. The Bible never teaches that. Free, free indeed is now, how about this? Freedom to do what you're supposed to do. Freedom to do, even better, to do what you were created to do. Freedom to do what you were made to do. Now, having been freed from sin, yes, I become enslaved to righteousness, but that's what I was designed by my Creator to do, to live for His glory and for His honor as a created being. And so now, all of a sudden, slaves of righteousness make sense. I live for the glory of God now. I do what I'm supposed to do now, whereas I couldn't before. Now, if I wanted to be controversial, I would mention this question. I won't, but if I wanted to be controversial, I would say, but what about free will? But since free will is like the untouchable evangelical idol, I won't mention it. Okay, maybe I will. <laughs> you know, I keep, just keep looking for that verse. And then I get to Romans 6. Slaves of sin, unrighteousness, slaves of righteousness, Or he'll go on to say, of God. There are two categories in the Bible. We're free. In fact, Jesus says we're free indeed. But it's freedom to do what's right. And we've been redeemed. We've been bought. He even uses slave market terminology. We've been bought out of the slave market of sin. But no doubt so that we could be entrusted to a new master. Much more could be said about it. I preached whole sermons on the subject. This has not been a controversial issue in evangelicalism until not that many years ago where we've forgotten our Bibles and we've become much more and more man-centered in our thinking. But you've got to deal with Romans 6. Now, there's a qualifier given in verse 19. It's like we come up for air. There's a, uh, this parenthetical statement, scholars would call it. Look at verse 19 where it says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Or as one translation says, because of your natural limitations. I don't think he's dismissing the analogy. I don't think he's trying to apologize for the analogy. But he's saying, hey, look, I realize this is just an analogy. 
There are other Christian analogies. I could be talking to you about father to child, our relationship to God. He's daddy, Abba, father, and we are his children. I could use other analogies. But since we're talking about this business, about whether or not it's okay for Christians to just live in big, fat sin because they're under grace, not law, I'm going to use this analogy. The slavery analogy. It breaks down. It's not perfect. But it's effective. And I think that's all he's getting at at the beginning of verse 19. Well, this would be enough for us. This would be enough for us to say, okay, this is a logical argument. But he continues on with the analogy. I really like the rest of verse 19. This is perhaps my favorite part of the passage, and hopefully you'll see why. He contrasts our former slavery with our current slavery. Look at verse 19 where he goes on to say, For just as you presented your members or yourselves as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now, note the contrast, present your members or yourselves as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And by the way, there's the command in verse 19. Present yourselves. Present your members. But notice the contrast. You used to be enslaved to sin. And that was just a downward spiral going from bad to worse. But now, enslaved to righteousness just leads to spiritual growth and, and, and sanctification and Christ-likeness. But no doubt as he draws the analogy where he says in verse 19, just as you were presented, or just as you presented, here's what he's wanting us to do. He's wanting us to make a mental connection between the similarities between the way we used to live and the way we live now. The Bible doesn't do this very often. The Bible doesn't very often ask you and ask me to think about our unconverted lives to spend some time meditating on our unconverted lives. But here is one of those places. Here he's saying, look at what you used to do when you used to be a slave to sin, a slave to impurity and to lawlessness, just as you acted then. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness. This can be effective. I'll invite you to do the very thing he's inviting us to do. I used to be a slave to sin, so I sinned. I didn't think twice about sinning. I sinned by myself. I sinned with others. I premeditated sin. I didn't think twice about sinning. That's just what I did because I was enslaved to sin. It was who I was. And he's saying, think about that. And make the connection between the way you live now. Righteousness by myself, righteousness with others, not even having to think about righteousness. This is who I am. This is what I do. As I was enslaved over here, I'm enslaved over here and I pursue righteousness with the same kind of tenacity, the same kind of passion. In the providence of God, I had... A meeting this past week with an old friend of mine. We haven't spent any time really together for about 20-some years. And it was in the providence of God because it reminds me of this very thing. We're having lunch, talking about things we did together, talking about what's going on now in our lives. And, and then, at one point in time, as we're enjoying our lunch together, he started 
reminding me about how I used to be. He started cataloging for me. I about choked on my sushi. <laughs> he started cataloging in pretty good detail some of the things I did that were very sinful and that we would do together. And I was, I was floored. And you know, it was interesting. He said something along the lines of, you know what, now I won't tell anybody about this. I know you're a preacher. <laughs> to which my response would be, you know what, it's okay. I mean, I preach salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone all the time. That's kind of the point. But anyway, life is an open book. That's the living testimony of that. But nevertheless, it, it, I, I forgot. I forgot about some of those things I did. I, I, I was thinking, this is, and how does he remember all of these things? But it is a good reminder to me that as I pursued those things then without even thinking, it was just who I was. There is to be a similarity. Now I'm a slave of righteousness. It's just who I am. It's just what I do. And the same should be true for you as well. We have new masters. We belong to someone else now. Everything is different now. And he wants us to think about the comparison. There's still more rationale for this in verse 20. For when you were slaves to, of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. If I can pick up on my illustration again, you know, I didn't think about righteousness and it didn't get in my way. That's, that's the freedom you had. It wasn't a good freedom, but that's the freedom you had. He picks up on that in verse 21 by saying, Therefore, what benefit? Literally, it's the word fruit. Well, what fruit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Yeah, I'm ashamed of those things that I did. And you know what? The outcome of that just, just ends up leading in absolute tragedy and death. So again, it's unthinkable for me as a Christian to think that I'm just going to keep living in sin doesn't make any sense. It's the ultimate in stupidity. It's the ultimate in irrationality. The outcome of those things is death. And again, because he's going to use it in comparison to, to life and eternal life, I think he's talking about eternal death. So think about it. If living in sin, we all know this as Christians, leads to death, Sin leads to death. And why would I say I'm a Christian saved by the blood of the Lamb uh, based upon the great work of Christ, but you know what? I just keep living in sin. Sin is what leads to death. This doesn't even make any sense. This is stupid. It is stupid for me to live in sin as a Christian. It is stupid for you to live in sin as a Christian. It just doesn't make any sense. It's irrational. It's absolutely irrational. It doesn't make any sense. He wants us to, to come to that conclusion. And then verse 22 says, But now... See, that's how it was in your stupidity. But now, having been freed from sin... Note the passive. Having been freed from sin. This is something someone else does for you. 
This is tied to the redeeming work of Christ. This isn't by our good works we're sanctified. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, even that is also passive. This is based upon the work of Christ. That's why He gets all the credit for all of this. I've been freed from sin and I've been enslaved to God. You derive your benefit. You derive your fruit resulting in sanctification or holiness and the outcome, eternal life. This makes lots of sense. Stop and think about it. Having been freed, having been enslaved, it leads to sanctification, which is ultimately putting you on the road to eternal life. So why would you want to sin? You don't have to sin. If you were still enslaved to sin and you hadn't been freed based upon the work of Christ, then then you would have no choice. But Christ's work is powerful having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. You don't have to sin. I don't have to sin. Now, as a footnote, Romans 7 is going to talk about the struggle that we have with sin even as Christians. So he's not arguing for sinless perfection this side of heaven. But as I said a couple of weeks ago, don't let Romans 7, knowing that it's out there, take the teeth out of Romans 6. Let him stay in. It's unthinkable. Verse 23 then, this famous verse that we forget sometimes its context. It's a great way to end the chapter. For the wages of sin is death. Why does he put that here? We usually use that verse in our gospel presentations, and I think rightfully so. It's a great, great half a verse. The wages of sin is death. The earnings. What you get is what you deserve. When you sin, you get death. It's what you've earned. Why does he put it in here, though? This isn't a gospel presentation. This is a sanctification presentation, a presentation talking about how to grow spiritually and, and how to fight sin and those things. I think he's, he's giving it to us on a giant placard as an accepted Christian truth. It is an axiomatic truth. It, it is just accepted as true by all Christians. It's a no-brainer, let's say. The wages of sin is death. I mean, if you know anything about Genesis onward, you know that the wages of sin is death. Where there is sin, violation of God's standards, God fairly, justly gives death. And the comparison is going to be with eternal life, so he's talking about eternal death. And Christians agree on this. No matter matter what, we, we just agree. You know what? Wages of sin is death. I think he's using it here so that we can all be reminded of this basic idea so that once again we can all see how stupid it is for us to think that because we're under grace we can just sin. That goes against one of the most basic things taught in the whole Bible which is the wages of sin is death. I think that's why he brings it up here. 
It just doesn't make any sense. It, the, the theological position or teaching to say, you know what, now that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, means, you know what, you can live however you want. Don't worry about it. Um, can I remind you of, you know, just like one basic Christian truth? Uh, the wages of sin is death. This doesn't make any sense. This goes against everything I learned in Sunday school. This goes against everything I've ever learned ever since I've been converted when they use Romans 6.23 on me. I think that's why he's using it here. It should just be like fingernails on the chalkboard. This is not right. It goes against the, one of the most basic Bible teachings. And then he says, by comparison, another basic Bible teaching in verse 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, there's the other side of the placard. There's the other side of that great sign. There's the other thing we learn in Sunday school class. This is the other thing that we all know if we know anything about Christianity. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, if we're Christians, we have eternal life. We possess eternal life. And we've been given it by God based upon the great, magnificent work of Christ on our behalf. We're united with Him. We're on the road to eternal life as we possess eternal life. The Bible speaks of it in both terms. And so once again, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to act like you're on a road to death when you're on a road to life. This is nonsense. This doesn't make any sense at all. Everything in us should cry out, Meganoita! Where did you come up with that crazy theology that says you can live however you want to live? Everything in me says that's wrong because everything about the basics of the gospel says that that's wrong. Twenty-three verses. That's impressive. Twenty-three verses dedicated to one topic in the book of Romans? You know, Romans is... is it's, it's a horrible analogy, but you know, Romans is packed. You know, it's like one of those little sponges that you buy and you add a drop of water and it goes... You know, it's huge. Or one of those little toys, you put it in water, you know, and it just grows and gets bigger and bigger because there's so much there. You know, getting a sip of water out of a fire hydrant. Some of these great, weighty, profound truths are taught in Romans, and we've seen them in Romans 1 to 5, and it's in like one verse, half a verse, third of a verse in one word, and you're like, man, we're going to do a whole series on this. And then... 23 verses making the point that if we're Christians, we have no business living in sin is pretty impressive. You get the idea, this is a big deal how you live your life and how I live my life. 
And what's interesting is, it's the first thing addressed after the gospel. I mean, Romans 1 to 5, in a nutshell, is the gospel. In detail. Let's chase this thing every which way but sideways. Let's make this clear. Let's defend this. Let's articulate this. Let's make this as crystal clear as we can possibly make it. Hmm, what should we talk about now? (laughs) It's like he doesn't even flinch. We'd better talk to Christians about living the Christian life. Because the only thing that's even close to as important as how to be a Christian is then how to function as a Christian. And so please don't let this slide. Let, don't, don't have this as a small thing. You know, in one sense, I have to confess before you, I've not done uh, a very good job because I'm preaching Romans 6 in two sermons. I feel like maybe I should be fired. There's so much there. But on the other hand, I've purposely chosen to do it this way because it's making one point, and sometimes it's good to see the big picture and not just focus on all of the small details. But please, don't don't have this be a light thing or a small thing. This is a big deal. How you live your life, how I live my life. And realize this, Romans 6 doesn't leave any of us in the position, if we say we're Christians, where we can say, I can't help it. I can't help it. I just sin, but you know what? I I just can't help it. I I can't help it. You better read Romans 6. Having been freed from sin. If I go down that road, that doesn't mean I don't need some help implementing, but if I go down the road or you go down the road that says, I can't do this, I can't help it, you, in effect, are calling for Meganoita! Because, in effect, you're saying what Christ did on the cross is powerless to free me from my shackles of sin. Remember, all this is tied to the cross. In the opening of Romans chapter 6, it's tied to the cross, union with Christ. You can help it, having been freed. I'm free. I don't have to sin anymore. I don't have to live like I'm enslaved to sin because I'm not. I'm actually enslaved to God. We'll get to Romans 7. There's a battle. But know that you don't have to sin. You do not have to. And it's not because you're such a hard worker. Having been freed from sin. It's God's work that does this. It's ultimately the cross. We should give Jesus Christ as much credit for our, justific- uh, our sanctification, our spiritual growth, as our justification. Hopefully you're seeing that in Romans 6. Enough for now. Pray with